dropping the truth bombs on the 1966 Michigan Swamp Gas UFO with returning guest Raymond Shemansky. Episode 9, Season 2 of the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. Welcome to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. Coming to you from the glacial dumping grounds known as the Michigan Basin. I'm Michelle. And I am Wayne. And we are a Michigan-based husband and wife educator and podcasting duo that after having a UFO sighting in March of 2018, have started to examine UFOs and other paranormal topics within Michigan and beyond. Topics include UFOs, the paranormal, conspiracy theories, ghosts, alternative history and archaeology, cryptids, and all things strange and paranormal. So sit back, grab a drink, and come along with us on this journey down the paranormal rabbit hole. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Hello everyone. Well, here we are, episode nine of season two, and you are listening to the only podcast that is going down the rabbit hole on an escalator with one of our favorite people to talk to, Raymond Szymanski. And and hitting that halfway point in July, Wayne, where's the summer going? I have no idea, and I don't want to talk about it. This is crazy. I know. Slow down. It is uh, July. 13th 2022 at the time of this recording i'm telling you people he keeps getting mad at me when i open up my work email or he'll look over and go are you doing something school related it's like uh no stop it stop it (laughs) you're you're doing that power of intention thing and you're making work come back faster we don't want that man it's hard not to check those emails, but seriously, it's got to slow down going going into the stores. I mean, we went to what Target. <laughs> well, that's like a teacher's nightmare right now to walk in there and see all those school supplies being set up. It oh, makes yeah. us sad. And they did that like overnight. It's like you go in there one day and it's just a normal store. Everything's good. Then you go back the next day for something and you, dun, you, got, dun. you got parents walking guy who go parents walking by going Mwah. It's like my kids are going back to school soon. Right. Why why do you why do you have all of this stuff out here? And and teachers are like, We we don't need to see glue sticks. We don't need to see colored pencils and glue sticks, pencil pouches. No Well, you know what? That's enough of Ooh. that stuff. Let's go ahead and jump into this show. So man talk about truth bombs do we've got some in this episode and this is where i'm gonna literally ask everybody that listens to this podcast to share this out because especially if you're in michigan you need to hear the stuff that raymond was able to uncover about the 1966 ufo flap that happened here in uh ann arbor washtenaw ypsilanti area and what Project Blue Book was up to. Yeah, not to mention anyone who is interested in meeting him and checking out some of his books. You know, you might want to mark July 30th on your calendar for that one. Absolutely. So he's going to be doing a live presentation and he says it may be his last one, but he'll be over at the Hillsdale Community Library. It is free to the public. They have about 90 seats available, and that is on July 30th at noon. Yeah, he's good at leaving some cliffhangers, too. 
I know that there's that one part of the interview where he talks about what he can talk about a while from now. He just can't talk about it yet. And it's like, he'll have an exclusive for us, he said. So, but he does really nail a certain person. Well, their job description. Let me just say this. There's a talk about a job description of somebody in Project Blue Book that he was able to get. So about 13, 15 minutes into the interview, pay close attention to what he says. Yep, keep those ears perked up. And then uh, something else I did want to add in was that uh, during the interview with Ray, every time he got ready to say alien... Or something. Oh my God. It was like glitchy. It started getting glitchy. Yeah. There was a interference that started happening, which was crazy. Nowhere Ever- else in the interview, just right. anytime the, the word alien was used. Or if aliens would, were at Wright Patterson. Yep. It would start like crackling and sound like the sound yeah. was going to go out and then it would come back and it wouldn't happen again until the word aliens came up. So I'm like, oh. It, like, it's, so you guys will hear that and there wasn't much we could do about it. And uh, so I just left it as it is so you guys can hear it. It literally sounds like there was some kind of interference in uh, trying to um, disrupt the interview. So <laughs> It's like the, the men in black somewhere. What are you guys talking about? <laughs> so anyways, once again, everybody, we will need your help sharing this one out and get this uh, interview, this episode of the podcast out to everyone that you know to hear what was going on, which may explain a lot about what's going on today. So very important stuff on this one. So we're glad to have you guys on board and we're going to get things going here. Speaking of sharing us out, remember we are on YouTube. So if you do want to share this podcast and this episode specifically, you'll be able to find us on YouTube now. So please search us out by just typing in Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. It is all one word, but you will find us. And remember, if you have a story you would like to tell, we would like to talk to you. And we got two of them today. Yep, we got two of them later on after the news. You can reach out to us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. Send us a brief summary of your experience and we'll contact you to discuss things further and try to get you or your story on the podcast. If you like the podcast and would like to rock out some of the coolest swag, head on over to our online store at miufopodcaststore.online. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page if you would like to support the podcast there. It is patreon.com forward slash M-I-U-F-O-S-P-E-P, where you can sign up. We can't wait to give you a shout out for all of your support. And speaking of those shout outs, we need to give a shout out to our friend Hava, who has joined us through Patreon. We'd also like to give a shout out to a wonderful family at a local dining establishment here in southeastern Michigan. So if any of you ever have that grumbling in your stomach and you happen to be on southbound 275 around Metro Airport and specifically exit 13 and you want to jump off and get something to eat, check out our friends at the New Boston Coney here in New Boston, Michigan. Yes, you got homemade soups and desserts and just delicious food that is served very quickly 
and Made With Love. You can find all of the links listed in the show notes. All right, Michelle, I think it's that time. It's time for What's in the News. Yes, what is in the news? Coming from science.org. Pentagon UFO study led by researcher who believes in the supernatural. Critics dumbfounded by reality TV star Travis Taylor's position as chief scientist. Oh boy. Dr. Taylor's going to get himself in some crap this time. Mm. Well, when the U.S. government released a much-anticipated report on UFOs a year ago, many were perplexed that it couldn't explain 143 out of the 144 sightings it examined. In the single closed case, the report concluded the mystery object was a large deflating balloon. Where the aliens cracked one headline. The truth was still out there. So was any sense of who had conducted the analysis because the officer of the director of national intelligence, which released the study, provided no details about who had investigated the cases. Hmm, Uh, Here we go. Last week, however, a former Department of Defense astrophysicist and reality TV personality named Travis Taylor asserted that he was the chief scientist for the congressionally mandated study. Yeah, he's uh, he's ending up in some hot water yeah, over the, this. This is not good. The controversy is hitting on this one. The revelation shocked UFO skeptics in the science community. They note that Taylor has made extraordinary claims during TV appearances, including to have seen more UFOs than I can count, and that he's been tracked by supernatural entities that caused his car and appliances to malfunction. I find it very difficult to believe federal authorities gave Taylor a prominent role in preparing the UFO report, says Seth Shostak, an astronomer at the SETI, the SETI Institute, who is familiar with Taylor's involvement with Ancient Aliens, a cable TV show that promotes far-fetched UFO narratives. Now, hold on a minute, Mr. Shostak. There's a lot of people that have issues with you as well. Just because you're running SETI doesn't mean uh, you can start throwing things around, especially since you were on the season finale of Skinwalker Ranch. I was going to say, they were just on the same show together. Uh Uh-huh. This is is some crazy stuff This is where you really wonder what happened, you know, uh off the camera well the thing is is that this kind of stuff though is distracting from people getting real things done now who's gonna believe that this new group is gonna do what they're supposed to do and that they're credible because i've seen travis taylor on that show and some other things that he's done and it makes me very skeptical but Let's continue into this article. In fact, Taylor did serve in a lead role with the government's Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, the UAP Task Force, which produced 2021's Fuzzy UFO Report. Pentagon spokesperson Susan Goh confirmed to Science Insider. But Taylor was informally referred to as the chief scientist as efforts to assemble a larger team were underway, and it was not a full-time position. Taylor did not respond to requests for comment. I wish he would have. Come on, dude. Just 
come forward and tell the damn truth. So uh, this looks like a little bit more of a background. So Taylor, according to his LinkedIn profile, has five advanced science degrees, including a PhD in optical physics and a PhD in aerospace and engineering, and is currently working on advanced propulsion concepts, very large space telescopes, space-based beamed energy systems, and next-generation space launch concepts. He has published two academic textbooks and numerous peer-reviewed papers. The guy is smart. He knows what he's talking about, but it just seems like that that ego might be kicking in and he wants to be out there playing both sides of the field just so he can be popular or something. It's like the TV entertainer, but please believe me because I'm the really smart guy. So in recent statements to George Knapp, a TV journalist in Las Vegas, Taylor said he was asked to be the government's lead scientist on UFOs in 2019 by Jay Stratton, whom he counts as a longtime DOD colleague and friend. At the time, Taylor was with the U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command, where he was employed from 2007 until retiring two months ago. Stratton was based at the Office of Naval Intelligence before retiring recently. Both men now work for Radiance Technologies, a Huntsville, Alabama-based defense contractor. So in addition to his TV work with Ancient Aliens over the past three years, oh my God. Taylor has starred in a show called The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch. So, And we are guilty of watching it. There's it's, nothing wrong with that show. No. I mean, it's it's interesting, but they're not doing real science out there that's the problem and he should know this the the paranormal stuff and you know the the stories that you know the different owners have have claimed it takes place on a utah ranch that claims to have a history of paranormal activity taylor told knapp poltergeist like entities from the ranch had followed him home to alabama and caused mechanical mayhem my car has started and stopped itself taylor said once, after his car stuttered in his driveway, Taylor said he looked up and there was an odd vortex in the clouds above my house. Okay, come on. Now look, there is the hitchhiker effect where people go to investigate haunted houses, locations, these kind of things, and then something does get attached to them and end up in their house and they end up having paranormal activity and things happen in their house. I've read about this. I've heard about this on many occasions. Yeah. In my brain, as soon as I hear odd vortex, my brain, I'm like going to the end of stranger things. So Taylor's critics are simply astonished by what they call his anti-scientific embrace of the supernatural and the Pentagon's willingness to work with him. I'm starting to see why the government's task force was so unsuccessful in identifying its UAPs, wrote Robert Schaefer, a UFO skeptic and author on his blog. Oh, Ooh. man. That that was that was a smack That's across the face. Harsh. So the news comes amid a surge of institutional interest in UFOs. Last month, NASA said it would fund a UFO pilot study months after Congress ordered the Pentagon to stand up a UFO office and produce annual reports. Meanwhile, Avi Loeb, a well-regarded Harvard University astrophysicist, has raised millions of dollars for the Galileo Project, which will scan the skies for UFOs. 
Loeb has drawn criticism for his willingness to work with zealous UFO believers. Last month, both Loeb and Taylor appeared together at a UFO disclosure symposium in Utah, where they reviewed and discussed various UFO videos. Might be interesting to get a video of that to see Avi Loeb and Taylor talking. I think you can. I think they videoed a lot of that stuff, and you could probably find it on YouTube. You know what? I want to give Travis Taylor, Dr. Taylor, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, though. And, you know, Mr. Taylor, if you're listening to this, you happen to hear this, you want to come on the podcast, we'd love for you to come on and talk about this because I know that there's things going on with the TV show. It is entertainment. And. Not everything you do is going to produce something. I mean, there's obviously one thing that they call a UAP in the show. Spoiler alert. It's a bug. So, Travis Taylor, you can reach out to us at mi.ufo.podcast <laughs> at gmail.com. Yeah, we'd love to have you come on and talk and, and let's uh, let's put some of this stuff out there because, you know, this could just be a hit piece. Maybe somebody doesn't like them. I know I raise my eyebrows at some of the things that I see, but I mean, he seems like a good dude. I just hope he's not getting caught up in the TV thing and leaving science behind, but he can be a believer too. Maybe he has seen things. Oh, so many wormholes and vortexes that we could be drawn into. Absolutely. Oh, and we'll leave that right there. So next... Speaking of the stories that we were talking about earlier and those that come to us in email, we've got a couple stories to go into in Communication Corner tonight. So our first is from Dave three in Three Rivers, Michigan. Back in 1989, in October, my son, who was 12 at the time, my best friend and I were bow hunting in Menden, Michigan. We were camping at a 1,000-acre cornfield, half corn, half soybeans. We were sitting around a campfire at approximately 10 p.m. just talking about the day's hunt. The corn was as tall as six feet high. I saw a white light coming through the tops of the corn at a distance. At first, I thought it was a helicopter coming at us low over the corn, but there was no sound coming from it. The closer it got to us, we could tell this is not any kind of aircraft. It was moving very slow, no sound, and bright white like the moon. At about 200 yards from us, it moved out of the corn and over the soybean field. There it stopped. As bright as it was, no light was lighting up the beams. It was about 500 yards away at this time, perfectly round, not pulsating or changing color, just pure white, and no sound of any kind. It came from the east heading west, stopped over the field, and after five to ten minutes, it headed north, straight away from us, still no sound, but traveled faster and soon was out of sight. Later, my son woke me up, and in the southern sky, there was an object darting erratically back and forth, and then it was gone. Dave says he loves the show, listens all the time. And again, that was Dave from Three Rivers, Michigan. Well, Dave, that was a great story, and we're happy to have you yeah, listening. Yeah, we, we've heard stories like that, too, especially around cornfield, you know, yep. and the fact that soybean fields, I mean, they're they're low to the ground. You're going to be able to see something a little bit better and clearer yeah. if it's over that type of field. 
Well, one thing I want to point out is he was saying this was back in 1989. Okay, not everybody had a drone with LED lights on it and stuff. So if somebody starts yelling, oh, that sounds like a drone, we're talking 30 years ago. Not everybody had a drone, and the technology for drones and remote control aircraft were not all that good back then. I so, mean, isn't this where we just simply say AOL people? It was even, I think, before AOL. Hmm. Yeah, or AOL was just starting out yeah, with the dial-up Yeah, starting modems. out, so just keep that in mind technology-wise. So next we have from an anonymous writer from with an interesting account from our Facebook group. Saw something tonight, so July 12th, this year, 2022, about 40 minutes ago. I had to bottle feed orphan animals and clean horse stalls. I like doing stalls at night as it's cooler. While dumping a wheelbarrow, I noticed something very slow moving and lower than what I normally see at night. Absolutely no sound. I thought maybe a weather balloon. I don't know what they look like. Then in a split second, it got really bright and just went so fast, disappearing right before my eyes. Probably a government plane, but you never know. And mm-hmm. that's from Lawton, Michigan. We've had some sightings like this come to us from the local Wayne Westland and Canton, Michigan area recently. People out walking their dogs, you know, they have to go out late at night at like two in the morning or whatever. And there's some kind of a weird, large floating craft and poof. Yeah, that's another story from the Facebook group. And the the guy who had posted, you know, he posted about in a park area near a church on Glenwood in the city of Wayne. Well, you know, those are my stomping grounds. Yep. And, you know, it's where I lived for, you know, numerous years. So it's like, wow. I'm like, I knew exactly where he had walked his dog. I knew exactly which church he was talking about and which neighborhoods were around. So, yeah. And he seemed kind of reluctant to let us know about this and and to put it out there and was really kind of like, I don't want to talk about it too much. So, and then just kind of put it out there and left it at that, which, you know, that's your business and, and more power to you. But Now we got people that are coming forward and saying that they saw something around that same time that was just like that. So if we can get corroborating evidence, that's the biggest thing that that we are trying to do and help people. You're not crazy if you're seeing something. We'll get, you know, somebody else that will show up and tell us that they saw the same thing. It's up to you guys. It's going to be, you know, disclosure is brought about by people like you and us and us talking about it. So keep it up. Keep giving us that information and we'll put it back out there to you guys as soon as we get it. All right, Michelle, I think it's time for us to get our guest on board here and start talking to one of our favorite people in the world to talk to. And that's Raymond Szymanski. If people are not familiar with Raymond, can you tell us a little bit about his background? Uh, Yes. Raymond is the award-winning author of the Alien Shades of Grey's trilogy, which has been endorsed by prominent UFO researchers and authors alike. His Department of Defense career spanned five decades at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base from 1973 until 2011. He retired as a senior electronics engineer. 
As chairman of the ADA Joint Program Office's Evaluation and Validation Team, he managed software developments critical to the national defense. While on a two-year executive loan to the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base commander, he served as the first director of the Installation Civilian Wellness Program, managing activities and scientific studies enhancing the wellness of 10,000-plus Wright-Patterson Air Force Base civilian employees. All right, so ladies and gentlemen, let's go ahead and welcome back to the podcast for his second appearance, a glutton for punishment. Mr. Ray Samansky. Thank you for joining us yet again. Uh, you're welcome. I have a high threshold for pain. Apparently, with all the research you've done into the UAP UFO topic. So uh, let's just go ahead and jump right into this. Well, and then also Wayne thought that I had completely forsaken him and jumped ship because I had not been on the last couple interviews, either from like a, a funeral or uh, marching band field trips. So this is even my time back. Back on the back on air. Yes, yeah, so we have a second guest on the podcast <laughs> as well. And yeah, he's not calling also in. My co-host. He's not calling in a, a special co-host tonight. Right. All right, Ray. So because not everyone may have heard the first episode, for those in our audience that didn't hear you in season one of episode eleven, Michigan's nineteen sixty-six UFO history revisited, and it's still not swamp gas. Can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what made you get involved in this topic? Hey, that's a great opening question. Um, for those of you who have been in a cave somewhere, uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base is famous for having had whatever crashed at Roswell being brought to the base for evaluation and exploitation sometime after July of 1947. And I just happened to have spent a career that spanned five different decades from 1973 to 2011 and actually encompassed um, nearly 39 years on the base. And I retired as a senior scientist slash engineer. So my connection is that I worked on a place that is world famous for its connection to the world famous Roswell event. 1973, it was January. It was the first time I was away from home. I arrived at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and I was assigned to an office and a mentor whose name was Al. And during the first week, he said, well, I'm going to get you a little like welcoming gift, and we're going to go from our two-story office building, which was attached to a 250-foot empty hangar, airplane hangar, to the other side of the hangar, which contains the coffee shop. And as we step down this ramp, he says to me, have you heard about our aliens? So I had just finished my sophomore year at the University of Detroit, uh, where I got a Bachelor of Science in Electrical and Electronics Engineering. And he lays this on me. Have you heard about our aliens? And I, I'm a guy from Detroit. I don't know jack about aliens. I have no idea what he's talking about. So we get in this conversation where I start asking him questions. And one of them was, what the hell are you talking about? And he's in, 
1947, there was a crash of a, of a machine uh, and the machine and its occupants were brought here to Wright-Patterson. And then he went on to explain um, that uh, it was a secret, a widely known secret about having these aliens in the tunnels and the recovered craft there. So here it is, you know, my first week at Wright-Patterson. I'm not even a full-time employee. I'm a cooperative education student. And the guy is telling me, We've got aliens and a crash craft on the base. So that is what really kicked it off for me way back in 1973. You know, listening to that and that background, you know, it only takes one guy like that on a base to start a story and it spreads (laughs) like wildfire. And I just wonder if this is the guy that started the whole thing about there being parts of a UFO and aliens at right Pat. But there, and now there's been all kinds of information out about there being a, uh, parts of a craft and, and aliens there. So, all right, I'm going to switch gears here for a minute. So back in May of this year, you were on the observation deck with Captain Ron. And you shared the screen with people like Richard Dolan and Danny Sheehan. Uh, when you started to give your introduction, I thought you dropped a huge bombshell, no pun intended, but it was about what was happening in the entire area of Southeast Michigan in 1966. So can you kind of explain what you found out when you were digging into the whole UFO, I guess they call it a UFO flap still in 1966 here in Southeast Michigan? Sure. Um, A flap for folks who may not know what it is, it's called a flap or a wave, like big waves coming in out of the ocean from 1964 to 1968. If you were to look at a plotting of the number of reports that were coming in to various first responders or to say Project Blue Book, um, you would see kind of a nice you know, hum, 1959, 60, 61, 62. So there's like an average, say, of about 300 a year. Now, suddenly you hit the year 1964 and bang, this thing goes up statistically significant. You know, it goes up to, let's say, 900. And it stays at an average of around 900 from 64 to 68. And right in the middle of that is the year 1966. And again, reviewing for those who may not know, in southeastern Michigan in 1966, flying saucers were being reported by many first responders. Most of them were police officers, and it was between the hours of like 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., so, you know, the darkest hours of the night. And the folks who were around those shifts were not only seeing them. And, and this would be in Washtenaw County and Livingston County and Monroe County, all these little counties that are adjoining each other. So there's a high concentration in a very particular spot of Michigan. And you can actually go into the files, go into the Blue Book files and see some of the reports that the, the police actually uh, collected their information on. So you had dozens and dozens and dozens of citizens, uh, earnest citizens and police officers reporting, seeing these flying saucers. And their stories were very, very similar. Like it was 
they'd find one and they'd watch it for 45 minutes. They'd be joined by a second one. And then two more would come and they would collect as a group of four and then they would take off and maybe some specific order or even random. But it turned out that this number four and the way that they were handshaking with each other, like one was hovering for the longest time as if it was observing and the others were off somewhere. And it was very consistent, very unusual, unusually so, but it was high quality. And there was a gentleman who worked for the uh, Ann Arbor uh, News, and he's the guy that was the police blotter reporter. So one morning, he's calling up all of these guys saying, hey, anything new? And they're all saying, hey, we, see, we saw flying saucers, and it's coming in from all the different police organizations, and he knows they're not talking to each other yet. So that's what happens in 1966 over a three-week period, starting around the 14th of March. Um, small little articles start appearing in uh, the Ann Arbor News, and then they got expanded as more reports came. Then on the 20th of March, um, over a farm in Dexter, Michigan, uh, Frank Manor and his son Ronald saw a UFO, a flying saucer, and they described it in great detail, land in the woods behind the farmhouse. Um, before that night was over, there would be over three dozen police officers chasing that flying saucer through that part of, of Dexter Township. And as luck would have it, an officer by the name of Honeywell was on the north end of that property. And he was there with another police officer and sure enough, one of the UFOs, flying saucers, hovered over his car at 1,000 feet, was soon joined by three more. And then they all took off. And this was the night of the 20th of March. The next evening, Hillsdale College had over 80 of their co-eds looking out of the windows of McIntyre Hall, which is only a couple hundred feet away from the Arb, the Arboretum. And they watched it for four hours and included were people who worked at the college and the guy who was the uh, civil defense director for that area all watched it for multiple hours. Police officers drove up on it. Uh, they filed reports. So here you have all of this stuff happening right in a small cluster geographically in southeastern Michigan in 1966. So now to answer your question, what did I find out? I sound like a congressional filibuster right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I might have missed. I might have missed my calling. Jump in at any time and and like or wave. Say stop, man. We gotta we gotta get a word in. So all of this is background. Yeah, thanks for doing that, by the way, because I'm coming in from the assumption that people are coming into this podcast with a little bit of background. We've talked about this enough, but we do have new listeners all the time that are jumping in. So I appreciate you going ahead and giving some of that background information for those that don't know what was going on here in Michigan, which I think was a travesty and really shut down the conversation that should have been happening from that time till today, which now we see a total reversal in the whole UFO UAP phenomenon kind of media, you know, and even Washington DC and congressional you know, people looking into this and we'll talk about that here in a minute, but go ahead. I just wanted to throw that in there. Oh, that's great. 
Um, and you touched upon something, uh, the congressional aspect of it. Well, there was so much activity going on that um, the sheriff of Washtenaw County, who had actually spent eight years as a sheriff uh, in his tenure, um, he tried contacting uh, some folks in Washington, D.C. and said, hey, we've got this going on. And, uh, you know, I tried contacting Selfridge Air Force Base, which was about 45 miles uh, due, due east of where all this activity was happening. And he said, they're not cooperating with me, so I have to go up the food chain. So he contacted Washington and they go, well, hey, this is the first we heard about it. Well, eventually, Congress uh, uh, Vivian and Congressman Ford, future President Gerald Ford, um, so many of their constituents had contacted their office, they couldn't get anything else done. So they contacted Blue Book and said, uh, at Wright Patterson and said, hey, you've got investigators. Can you send some to Michigan? Because we have so many great reports out of here. It's one of those great cases. You need to go and do your thing. Well, unfortunately, Blue Book's thing was debunking. Blue Book presented itself as a government investigative unit, but as history has proven out, they did zero investigation, zero scientific advancement, and they basically were public relations. It's like uh, those droids are not the ones you're looking for. So they sent Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who um, was on paper a scientific consultant and was supposed to be uh, coming up with you know, scientific explanations for this. He knew he was a debunker. And so he had to find some way to debunk the entire story. And I'm going to give you an exclusive insight now for your show. There is a gentleman in this area named Rob Mercer, who has um, investigated over 300 cases for the Mutual UFO Network. And Rob and I became friends after he attended one of my local presentations. Rob told me, I found one of the case files for a Project Blue Book investigator, Lieutenant Carmen Morano. Would you like to come over to my house and see Carmen Morano's files, which I did? I now own some of those original files, including some 35 millimeter slides. But the point I'm going to make here is this a little known factoid, which has never been released. I got to read Lieutenant Carmen Morano's job description. And in that job description, it did not say you will investigate UFOs. It said you're being hired to explain away the UFOs. It was in print. So there you have it, folks. Even Blue Book's own job descriptions said, you're not, you're not scientifically investigating these things. Your job is to explain them away. And that's what the government did. They brought in Hynek. And eventually, after two and a half days, he was given the swamp gas explanation by a faculty member at the University of Michigan because Staying at a hotel was too good for Hynek. His friends who were on the faculty at the University of Michigan actually housed him during his stay. And every night they would have a meeting, a powwow, and he would regurgitate what had happened during the day. And during one of these jaw sessions, 
so one of the professors said, have you heard about the spontaneous combustion of rotting foliage in a swamp? And he said, no. So they went on to explain the swamp gas phenomena. As soon as that was out, Heineck called his boss, in Washington, his boss in Dayton, who then called Washington and said, I think we've got the explanation we're looking for. It's swamp gas. So the next day, Heineck is in the office of the Washtenaw County Sheriff, whose name changed for the moment, but it does. And he gets a phone call. And he goes in the office, grabs it, and says, aha, comes back in and tells the sheriff, you saw the street, it's swamp gas. And you go to, um, it's up on the web, you find the sheriff, and he actually talks about um, what had happened and how Heineck got the swamp gas explanation. So there you have all the things that happened, all the first responders, all the great witnesses. Now you've got the congressional people saying, hey, get these people off our back, find out what happens. Heineck was powwowing with the University of Michigan people. He was staying with one of the professors. In fact, one of, one of those professors, despite the fact having never seen a flying saucer during that time, went to bat and start making up his own explanations to help Heineck get out of the hole that the Air Force was in. And if you read my book, Swamp Gas My Ass, all of that is covered, including the complicit University of Michigan. Now, I, I don't want to uh, take away from the original question that I asked you, because I do want you to get to that, because I find it fascinating, because you have to put people in the mindset of possible nuclear bombers coming over the North Pole. But do you have any idea why their mission was to explain these things away? That's probably the question of the ages. Um, Colonel Carroll, the hero of Swamp Gas My Ass, another shameless ad, <laughs> uh, I asked him that question. And he said, well, um, in from his position as a fighter pilot and somebody who has the world's finest technology on his F-106, uh, a plane that was in our inventory for like 20 years, it was top line fighter interceptor for all that time. He said, the people in my chain of command are going to be have a lot of pressure put on them by their bosses and their bosses, bosses and congressmen and president of the United States in this fashion. We are giving you billions of dollars and building you the best airplane with the best technology, with the best uh, infrared sensing system, with the best radar systems. And you mean to tell me with the best technology that mankind has, you cannot tell me what is powering that flying saucer that you're chasing, or you can't tell me why it's not showing up on your infrared, or you can't tell me how it's doing that 20 G turn that is a pure 90 degrees. That's a lot of pressure. Now that's what Colonel Carroll said. He said, you're, you cannot defend your position. Why don't we just mothball y'all because you're not keeping the skies free and clear. And that's your job. You're not doing your job. From my perspective as a civilian, you know, I look at it this way, Wayne, if I told you tomorrow I waved, you know, the, the fingers and said, 
you are a brain surgeon and you've got to do a successful lobotomy on somebody tomorrow. It's a job you could not do. Who wants to go to work every day and tell their boss and the people who are paying their salary, I can't do my job. Uh, you've given me absolutely everything I need, but it's a job that I can't do. Who wants to do that? Who wants to admit that? What president wants to go on the air and say, folks, we're hopeless against these. So I think it was, that's two good reasons for doing it. And others might be crap. We don't know what this is. We know we're helpless. So if we just keep, if we just bury this stuff, it's one less issue that we have to answer to. It'll go away or we'll look at it secretly, you know, but it's a problem that nobody could solve and we still haven't. And that's why it's been deep sixed, in my opinion, for the last 75 years. Yeah, I would I would tend to agree with you. But what's interesting is, is that the capabilities that uh, Colonel Carroll was talking about that this or these craft were doing when they were pursuing them is exactly the same kind of uh, maneuvers and stuff that we have today with the Tic Tac videos and what's being reported by F-18 pilots to this day. So it's really it's nothing new for us now. But what's new is, is hearing this, that how this was happening and how our government was actively putting it into file 13 and, and telling massive groups of people in Michigan, especially that they were just seeing swamp gas and, and making everybody look like a fool. And that was pretty much when everybody just stopped the conversation and then it became a running joke. Oh, it's just swamp gas. And you, you can still hear it to this day. It's uh, sad that how things have now turned and people that were, you know, alive back in those days that have passed and seen this, you know, never got the vindication that, you know, hey, it's really happening. We believe you. We don't, we still don't know what they are. And, you know, unfortunately, these people were, were left sitting there thinking that they were crazy, which then if, if, if seeing UFOs and flying saucers is an actual thing, then what it brings into question, what else then? What about hybridization? You know, are women and men being abducted to, you know, take their DNA and create alien hybrids and things like that? So what else has been locked away and, and kept from us? Cattle mutilation and things like that. So, yeah, it's just my thought on it. And it, it it's really quite disturbing as somebody who grew up in Michigan. I was born in 1970, so I've been around a little bit. And honestly, until Michelle and I had our experience in 2018, never heard of any kind of UFOs here in Michigan. Come to find out, we're number four on the most reported UFO sightings, especially triangles, to MUFON. So there's something definitely going on. Unfortunately, the revelations of 25 June of last year, where the ODNI, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, published that nine-page report and said essentially three things, three key things, among others. One is flying saucers are real. So it's an admission that the nuts and bolts are real. Two it is definitely a safety of flight issue. 
And then they said it's potentially a national security issue. And I believe it is a real national security issue. Um, but I think they're saying potential because if they go, it is a national security issue, then I think a lot of people would spaz out. But if we can go back momentarily now to 1966 and we ask ourselves, well, what made that part of Michigan so popular? And um, if you do a little bit of research, you'll see that the entire city of Detroit was surrounded by Nike Hercules missiles. Originally, those were Nike Ajax missiles, which were conventional missiles. The Hercules missile is a newt. So uh, you can go on websites and they're, you know, official dumb. And you can see that, and I'm just going to throw out a number here because, you know, I write about this stuff and then factoids leave me. So I'll leave it up to your, your audience to do, do some due diligence. There were probably a dozen sites and they don't necessarily have the nukes in Detroit, but they'll have them in Monroe. And they'll have them in Ypsilanti. And they'll have them in Shelby Township and then Pontiac. But there's a ring around Detroit because it was a major manufacturing location. And if we needed to go to war, a lot of those automobile plants would have instantaneously been converted to some war producing kind of facility. So you had to protect the infrastructure. Now, according to what I remember, those missiles only had about a 90 to 100 mile range and they were nukes. So the strategists of the time, they feared that the closest route for a Russian nuclear bomber was up over the pole. They would come down through Canada. And then maybe sometime just before they hit the old casino in Windsor, we'd launch that nuke and we would explode it in the middle of that fleet of nuclear bombers. And it would hopefully fall harmlessly among the moose and caribou somewhere in Canada. And, you know, it wouldn't rain or even if it was, you know, in the upper part of the lower peninsula, which is less populated, but we wouldn't let it get to New York city or Chicago or some of those other hubs or Detroit, for example, and that Detroit was not the only place that had these uh, Hercules missiles. So you had something of interest and it's proven throughout the years that nukes and flying saucers have been connected. And, and there's the famous case in Malmstrom where they flew over an ICBM site. They shut down all 10 missiles. Uh, they did that multiple times uh, in that part of the country. In 1947, you know, what attracted them to Roswell? Everything we were doing in the country, in, nuke-wise, was in Roswell. The 509th Bomb Group, the only aerial bombing group in the world, was in Roswell. Uh, you had um, uh, Sandia Labs, the guys creating the nukes. You were exploding nukes in Trinity. Literally, it was the bullseye of all the nuclear activity in 1947. That's what was attracting all those, those orbs and flying saucers they were seeing. So as time went on and we started to distribute that, Detroit would have been one of those places if they were interested in looking at our nukes. Man, a lot of stuff. And who knows? I really haven't dug into it, but I'm going to speculate 
that people at the University of Michigan or Western Michigan or Eastern Michigan or somebody Michigan was doing nuclear research. Absolutely. I would have to agree. Yeah, and there's probably some uh, small, uh, you know, a trigger, nuclear trigger plant there or something. If one were to dig in, I've done this in Ohio, and I've actually created a trail. And in one of my books, uh, I think it was Victoria's Secret Truth, I listed, you know, why they would have been to this area. And the whole trail mound, famous for, you know, its nuclear work in Miamisburg, uh, you know, 20 miles from here. So that's the why, I think, is you know, they were uh, maybe just doing some reconnaissance. Yeah, I I would tend to agree with that. And now you bring up a, a very interesting question. The University of Michigan kind of helping out to cover up what was going on. And in the day and time of 1966, when you were talking about Marxist revolutions, the communists were pushing everywhere. We're uh, We're trying to fight back against this. And it's no big secret out there that college professors out there seem, you know, back in those times, and even still seem to be very collectively mindset that, you know, nobody should own anything and the government should kind of control it. The whole idea of, of communism. Why would, during that time, a large university such as the University of Michigan and professors who should be very anti-capitalist, anti-government, Vietnam War starting to brew, Korean War is kind of, you know, still in people's minds at that time. Why would they want to help out and cover up UFOs and help protect a nuclear arsenal? It, it seems kind of, you know, bass backwards, as they would say. Um, first of all, I believe those people were not smart enough to make the connection between the flying saucers and the Well, nukes. I was just wondering if maybe they were working on it and that was their cover. Well, there's a lot of government uh, money that goes to major universities. And um, there is no doubt in my mind that there were probably thousands of federal grants. And so, you know, anything to help the government through helping their buddy Hynek was going to put them in a good light with the people who are funneling funds, you know, government funds to them. So of course they're going to be cooperative. Um, that's, that's a no brainer, but I don't think that, that anybody really put together the connection uh, of, of the nukes and, you know, why that would invite uh, the visitors there. And then again, you know, it might've been a personal favor to Dr. Hynek. He said, Hey, uh, here's a deal. You know, you help me out and, you know, I'll, I'll put some good words in uh, with the boys in Washington. The next time, you know, you need someone to um, talk about your character and, you know, help you be more competitive in, in getting some funding. So I'm, I'm not surprised uh, at all with their personal relationships that he had with those people that they would come out and try to help him uh, with the cover story. And, and, you know, it's maybe no deeper than just that. Yeah. It just seemed like it was a very concerted effort for them all to kind of collude and, and hide these facts all the way to talking about people are looking at Venus in the sky. Hey, everyone. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors and some friends of the podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, everyone. This is Jared Murphy of NotAliens.com, and you are listening to Wayne and Michelle from Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. Hey there, it's Richard Serrett, occasional weekend guest host of Coast to Coast AM and host of The Conspiracy Show. And you're listening to Wayne and Michelle's Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. What's up, everyone? This is Burton. And Aaron from Lost in the Dark podcast. And raise your horns because you're listening to Wayne and Michelle from Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. What is up, you guys? It's your girl, Gemma Jade from Gemma Jade YouTube, Moon Bear Oracle, Paranormal Chop Shop. You're here listening to Wayne and Michelle with the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Hi, this is Chris Lato of the Chris Lato YouTube channel, retired F-16 pilot turned UAP investigator, and you are listening to Wayne and Michelle on the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Hi, this is Terry Lane Keel, director of MUFON memberships, investigator, demonologist, and author of Alien Healing, the true story of a benevolent extraterrestrial. And you're listening to Wayne and Michelle on the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Michael Schreck, military aerospace historian and private pilot. And you are listening to Wayne and Michelle at the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. And we're glad to have you with us today. Let, let's piggyback for a second on this people coming together and having discussions. So, Ray, what did you make of the congressional hearings on UFOs, UAPs? What are your thoughts? Um, well, interestingly enough, the swamp gas incident was the only incident that caused a congressional hearing like ever, because late March went on. On the 25th of March, Heineck gave that talk. Uh, Gerald Ford's head exploded as a result of that and said, you know, this is flippant answers. This is not what we asked you for. So he marched the secretary of the Air Force, Dr. Hynek, uh, Major Quintanilla, who was head of Project Blue Book. On the 5th of April, he marched all of those boys in front of Congress for an investigation. So now you fast forward 75 years uh, 
later and you have this congressional investigation, you know, they were able to deep six this stuff very effectively because they had lots of help for 75 years. I don't know why they're doing this now. I think that might shake out as time goes along. I mean, look at who the players are, right? NASA, suddenly, who has been airbrushing out evidence since, um, you know, they've had it. Maybe they need more funding. They need a shot in the arm because guess what's happening? Private companies are launching vehicles into space. NASA doesn't have that um, that sole control of that. So now it's like, yeah, we'll we'll look we'll look for alien life, dudes. Look for it in the photos that you've been airbrushing since 1959. That's what I would say. All right, I'm I'm off my soapbox for the moment. My impression was that were hamstrung by what they knew and could only um, there were many things that they knew could not say um, because it was a public hearing and you can't give away sources, methods, etc. And there's there's many reasons for them to be fumbling. Um, but what really shocked me is they were a mile wide and an inch deep. They did not know about Malmstrom. And that was a setup because Salas has been the poster boy out there telling everybody about what happened through the ATIP people and everyone else who he's well connected to. He got to that congressman. And that congressman was like, you got to know about this. You know, you guys are in charge of this. And you're telling me you don't know about the time they shut down 10 missiles. So, yeah, maybe they knew about it, but they couldn't say because it reveals their sources and methods. Um, but it was pretty shameful how thin they looked, how thin their knowledge looked for the people who are in charge. And that's what the congressman said, right? You boys are in charge. You know what my favorite part was? What's that? Is when the guy goes, don't remember your names, dudes. But he said I think that was the admiral of the Navy or something like that. Uh, he, he was a special consultant. He was umpity ump. He said, okay. well, if somebody if somebody in power had directed me to look into it, I'd look into it. And the guy goes, well, I'm only a congressman. So take this as a direction to look into it for me. Would you please? <laughs> it, was <just laughs> like, it was like he was saying, well, you know, I got better things to do, but. I'll look into it. If <laughs> Then the guy goes, yeah, dude, that's exactly what I want you to do. And he goes, right. oh, yeah. And then he, he takes a, he takes a note. Yeah, I thought that was fabulous. So overall, thank God it happened. Um, I regret that Stanton Friedman was not here to see it. Uh, he was a good dude for everybody. I love the guy. Uh, I didn't have a lot of personal interaction with him. But when I did, you know, um, the world was a safer place. And I, I was through people like him, I think, that put the pressure on and finally got this uh, rolling and kept a lot of us enthused and kept our faith when we needed it. When, you know, people paraded these dumbass McGehey and Shotstack or whatever his name is out of the <laughs> woodwork when yep. they needed to, you know, and the Hynex of the world. Friedman kept us going. I think he's uh, the reason that this is happening now. Yeah. Does it? bother you at all that the air force seems absent in all of this stuff and that it just seems to be you know around the the u.s navy that's coming forward 
now obviously the air force was in charge of project blue book back in the day and maybe they're just keeping their heads low and not wanting to be involved in this but you cannot tell me that the air force does not have some kind of evidence recorded radar you know uh, recordings or eyewitnesses but man they are just nowhere to be found all right here's my take pure speculation i'm not backing this up with any facts this is just a guy who spent 40 years working as a civilian for the air force i think your assessment is correct they're laying low but notice who outed this the navy and here's why because it's not going to fall in their job jar. They know the Air Force is going to get this. They know it's going to pull their resources. So they're going, sure, we'll tell everybody about it because we're going to be in the background here. We'll have some Intel guys helping, you know, funnel some of our videos. But man, the Air Force, it's their job to keep the skies clear of enemies, foreign and domestic. And y'all are going to have to suck it up again. So the Navy's like, sure, whatever you want. That's why the Air Force is not digging the grave a little bit deeper. Oh, yeah, let's make it a seven-foot grave instead of six feet. So, yeah, they're, they're, it, the, the poop is going to hit the fan, and, and it's going to fall directly uh, onto the Air Force. I'm pretty sure of that. Yeah, and also it might be uh, back to some of that. Well, you guys are supposed to be protecting the sky, aren't you? We're we're in charge of the water, but uh, you know. So now let's kick the ball back over to them. What do they have to say? That was the, my first thought when the Navy thing got released. It's like the Air Force is going, "Son of a biscuit, we're going to get stuck with this thing again." So um, I can tell you that. There is a brand spanking new building being put up here at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and it's going to about double the size of the people who did Project Blue Book the first time around. So it would not surprise me if that brand spanking new building that's going up is where the Air Force is going to deposit um, this new job they're going to get. That's fascinating, and it's going to be right there. I, I, I bet you're right. I yep. bet you're right. What a place to have it, you know, right yep. there it's, at ground zero. It's coming back home, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So with all of the research that you've done over the years, all the things that you heard, and even during your time at Wright-Patterson, was there anything surprising you learned about UFOs that has not been revealed yet, but you were maybe able to talk about later some of the off the record stuff that you could maybe uh, discuss a little bit? You know, it's mostly water cooler talk. And it's a lot of um, what you find out is there's a lot of interest there, of course. You know, I had my baptism by fire my first week, and I was always curious about it. And my interest and my ability to participate in that and doing research, you know, it was kind of, you know, a wavy thing because I had a lot of jobs to travel, a lot of responsibility, go finish that off, wait for the next thing, fill it with cooler talk. So there was a lot of interest. Um, everybody on base knows the history, knows that Project Blue Book was there. Um, you know, they know Senator Goldwater 
they he tried to get in. He tried to get General LeMay to give him into the blue room, wherever that is. So there's just a lot of of of, of um, awareness. And a lot of people are very fluid. You know, people I meet on the street go, hey, I saw your book. And, and you know, that's really cool that you did that. And would you like to know about thus and such? So anything that has been told to me where they said, I believe this to be true or I know this to be true, but I'm only telling you for, you know, your knowledge, I would never repeat. And I can tell you that my head has exploded on a couple of occasions. So it appears to me if some people have found things out, but they, to me, they're not first person. It's no one has really said to me, Ray, I was in the vault. I saw the alien. And when it gets to be second and third person, I hear that so much all the time. You know, and I, I could never I could never um, get back into those buildings or find a location where they said something that they heard they saw. So for me, it's just a dead end. And it's just it's just another story. Um, but if you know, if you if you want to do a reality check. The materials directorate at Wright Patterson Air Force Base has been here for over 100 years. It was founded in 1917. And when the Roswell crash wreckage was brought here, the only place it would have been taken besides maybe, I mean, if it was the metals would have been taken to the materials director because they were a world-class organization that did aviation materials. The way it would have worked is those three inch by three inch pieces would have been brought in a briefcase. You know, they were taken by Jesse Marcel and somebody, Pappy Henderson, supposedly who flew the B-29 in. It went to Fort Worth. From there, it parts of it went to Washington, D.C. For, for air staff to look at. Part of it went to Wright-Patterson. And we know it went to Wright-Patterson. Why? Because Jesse Marcel, the guy who picked it out of the desert, said, I escorted it to Fort Worth, to the 8th Army Air Corps headquarters. And then from there, a good part of it went to Wright-Pat. And the guy who was the chief of staff of the 8th Army headquarters in Fort Worth, who handled it because Marcel brought it to him and gave it to him, signed a legal affidavit and said it went to Wright Pat. So we got two guys that handled the material. So where would it go to Wright Pat? Materials directorate. Why? Because they were already there for 30 years at the time. They would evaluate it. Guy would bring a briefcase in, little pieces. They were three inch. Yeah, there was a three foot by two foot section. Didn't need that. Same material. Guys, here's the deal. You have all the money, the security clearances, the technical expertise. If you don't have the guys you need, we're going to pay for it. You got the machines, you don't have it, we're going to pay for it. In six months or whatever it is, tell us what you can tell us about this material because they don't know. Is this Russian technology? We need to get in front of this. So they bring it to materials directorate. They go ahead, evaluate it. Guys come back, you know, dark suits, tie, sunglasses. Hey, where's the report? They get a report. They say, you're sworn to secrecy. Nothing happened here. You're never to talk about this. They take the singular report, you know, that a secretary type. They bring her into the room, read her the riot act. You'll be killed if you ever talk about this. They take their stuff back to Washington. Okay. So I'm 
a little squishy about aliens coming here. Now, my guy said the occupants were brought here, but there is no paper trail like there is for the metals because the, the chief of staff and Marcel said it was brought here. None of those guys mentioned anything about little green people. And that stuff would have passed through Army Air Corps headquarters, the 8th Army Air Corps headquarters in Fort Worth, if it was coming the right path. Absolutely. You would definitely think there would be a paper trail. If there is about the, the metals and the material, there would have to be something about any kind of occupants. It just makes sense that they would they would want to track that and discuss it, what to do with it. What do we, what do we do? And so my point then to finish up is the Air Force would be the worst hide and seek players in the history of mankind if they had a head start beginning in 1947 and in 1973 and, and glimpse of an alien. You know, that was a secret, as everyone said, that was above the A-bomb secret. So I if they if there were aliens, I believe they would have come the right path because you had people in pre-human effectiveness laboratory positions that were looking to see how G-forces, for example, would would uh, influence pilots, things like that. And so you would have people um, that were schooled in physiology. And Wright-Patterson had a regional hospital building 219 in 1947. That hospital is literally 100 feet from the flight line, the active flight line at Wright-Pat. They would drop in, put it in an ambulance, no one would know the difference because an ambulance coming to the hospital is an ordinary thing. They had doctors stationed there, nurses there. They had a morgue. They had an operating room in that building. They had all the equipment they needed to do an autopsy. They had security clearances, equipment. Uh, so everything they needed to handle living or dead aliens could have happened in building 219. I've yet to be able to track anything down that's concrete, except for the fact that that building is haunted. Explain haunted. What's, yeah, what's say, going tell on? Tell us what you know. There's um, at least three buildings at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base that have had uh, paranormal incidents. And one of them is building 219. Uh, it was the uh, former regional hospital at Wright-Patterson. Um, there were deaths there, of course. It was a pediatric clinic. Unknown to most people, and here's another exclusive for the Wayne Braden show. <laughs> for several years, the Foreign Technology Division had offices in Building 219 after it was a pediatric clinic. So the guys who were in charge of Blue Book and their ilk actually sat in that building. Now, there was also the called the Arnold House and was another uh, location. It was the original farmhouse. And then the government bought the property and developed Wright-Patterson. And then there was a building one, uh, which uh, had a operational history. So I'm going to guess, I, I'm going to throw out a, a year. I'm probably wrong. I think it was around 2008. The, the ghost hunters came in, the famous, uh, you know, TAPS people. And, and the TAPS people came in and building 219 was one of the buildings 
that they they did three nights there and that was one of the buildings well nothing happened that night so it didn't make the show the arnold house and the other building did well in 219 uh, when i was the wellness director for wright patterson air force base it was a two-year executive assignment i had office space in building 219 and I stored some of my stuff there that I couldn't store. I was actually in the 88th Air Base Wing headquarters where the base commander was because I was a direct report to his office for two years. But I had equipment and other things uh, and uh, some personnel based in 219. And so I would go. It was always in, always in that building. It was literally 10-minute walk. Well, I found an article about building 219. And it mentioned a woman's name. And I went on a radio show and I mentioned her name and I got contacted the next day by that woman's granddaughter. Turns out the granddaughter used to accompany the grandmother when the grandmother worked evenings there cleaning the building. And the woman who contacted me had first person stories of things that happened to her and her friend who would accompany her and the grandmother most of the evenings during the week. And she told me stories that only somebody who had been in that building multiple times would know about. And so I interviewed her and I got all of her stories and I was able to verify a whole bunch of things. I have photographs of her and her grandmother together. You know, I was able to verify all that stuff. Um, and of course, I did my own snooping in the building. And I can tell you that it's a very creepy place. So I also know people in the building because I was a photographer for about 10 years for the Air Force Marathon. Their offices were in there. And I had a special relationship with the office because the Air Force Marathon director, her office and my office were right next door to each other. We talked on a daily basis. So I talked to her staff when they got moved from building 10 to building 219. And they told me stories about paranormal stuff that happened to them. In fact, one day, this was now weeks after they told me about this phenomena of the locks of the doors locking themselves and unlocking themselves. One day I went in to pick up my pass to do my next photography gig. And there was a sign on the door talking about the locks, about beware, if you go outside, the door may lock itself. And the locksmiths, they couldn't figure it out. So not only had these people told me the story before the sign went up, but shortly thereafter, the building maintenance guy puts up the sign, dudes and dudettes, there is something happening with the locks. So heads up. And they, they chalked that up to paranormal, huh? Well, there are voices that have been heard by the staff, the people I've interviewed. Um, on the third floor are the chaplains, are the Air Force chaplains. And I have talked to them at length. I am not at liberty at this point to tell you what they told me. Would a chaplain lie to me? I hope not. <laughs> so there's still stuff going on in that building and people are still reporting it. And when I drop in every once in a while, I go, Hey, what's happening? They'll go, Oh, you won't believe this. Like, you know, we heard voices down uh, where the morgue used to be kind of thing. And of course I had a friend who was the head of chief of protocol. She was in the Arnold house. And when they interviewed her for the TV show, 
only so much stuff made it to the show. And a lot of it, of course, hit the cutting room floor. I got to interview her because I knew her. When I was wellness director, I set up a special event for her and her staff at the gym, at the fitness center. So she was open to telling me her story. And so um, I do a talk called Haunted Wright Patterson. And in there, I reveal some of the extra stuff that happened paranormal-wise on that base that did not make it to the UFO Hunter show. And maybe someday I'll put that in a book. So, Ray, here's a question for you. Since we talked, started bringing up the paranormal with Wright Patterson, do you think that UFOs and the paranormal are connected? I'm not going to discount it. I mean, what's more paranormal than a flying saucer, right? You know, little guys from another galaxy. Yeah, you know, they, they sure they have a nuts and bolts machine, but these guys float abductees through their walls and windows and you know, they do unspeakable things to them. They, they do, you know, hybridization stuff. What's more paranormal than that? It's not ghosts, but there's some stuff that ghosts supposedly do that these people, that these entities are doing to human beings. Yeah, I, man. Yeah. I think that's a slam dunk. Depends on your definition of paranormal. Too. Right. Well, some people will will put ufology as, you know, the nuts and bolt flying saucer alien thing. And then off on the side, we have paranormal, which is more the spirits and ghosts and poltergeist and demon possession and things like that. And, and then there's some people that are kind of in the middle. Like, I would guess I would put myself in that same position saying that somehow these things may be all connected. And, uh, but as to being able to prove that out or do any kind of experiments or anything like that, you know, who's, who's to say, but, but one thing I want to ask you before we start to wrap this up is when you were doing all of this research and flying saucer was the word used of the day back in the sixties and fifties, did you ever come across any reports of the, the flying triangles and giant triangle type of, uh, craft i wasn't looking for any uh, i was just looking for you know i'd identified tracked down colonel carroll and got his story and then it was you know i set about just trying to corroborate everything uh, newspaper articles official military records formerly classified documents and uh, triangles really weren't on my radar uh, because um, nobody in that 66 Swamp gas UFO was reporting triangles. It was a cone shaped, football shaped, oblong shaped kind of thing, you know, saucers. So it was that kind of kind of thing. There, there were nothing about triangles that really popped up anywhere in that. Okay. And before we wrap up, I want to make sure that we give a shout out to my my upcoming appearance in Michigan. Absolutely. So what kind of things you got coming up in the future? Well, right now I have one thing. Uh, which may be my final live public appearance. And that is going to be uh, at near ground zero. It's going to be Hillsdale Community Library. It'll be the 30th of July. That's a Saturday, 30 July. Uh, it will kick off at noon. It will go to 2 p.m. I'll do about an hour talk. We'll do some question and answer. Then I'll have all three of my books for purchase and autograph. I will probably afterwards, if folks want to, find a local pub, get a couple of big tables, have a beer, have a lunch, 
uh, you know, let people uh, tell the group about their experiences, why they showed up, you know, maybe some of the things that they've done. And I'll probably get there an hour early to set up and, you know, hobnob with the library staff and thank them and that. But there may be a few minutes beforehand if, you know, folks wanted to get a book or, you know, tell me a quick story or something uh, before we set up. So I'm really looking forward to it. And um, right now, that is the last live public appearance um, that I have on the books at this moment. Now, I've heard a rumor that you're not done writing books. Um, I've got, you know, two books that were uh, stillborn because I had one book I was writing and then I wound up writing Victoria's Secret Truth. And then I was writing a second book, which was like an expansion of that dead one. And I was bringing it back to life. And then Colonel Carroll came along and I, you know, I wrote his story. And so um, I've got an idea to resurrect that maybe, you know, if the winter turns cold, there's three books in a trilogy and I've already written three. So I, I, I'm happy to leave it there. But if some debunkers come out and start spewing some really sad stuff about, you know, the government sucks and they're not giving us enough, I may be motivated to write another book just to dump on all those people. Okay. Well, I'm going to pretend I'm a congressman and go, all right, Ray, the government sucks. This is all fake. If you want to write a book, go ahead and write a book about it. <laughs> I put that guy's face on the cover. <laughs> Cause you want to know why? Cause I am vindictive. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well, Ray, this has been a great night and, uh, great conversation. Um, if we do happen to get you back on, I definitely want to ask you about what do you make of like the Robert Bigelow NIDS and the whole advanced aerospace threat identification program, Lou Elizondo and all that stuff. And, and great. maybe we can uh, have you come back on and, and talk about that at a later time. Let, let's do that. Um, I may have some really big news coming out, but I am not at liberty to talk about it. I'm just going to drop that bomb. And it may be months before I'm able to say anything, but um, you never know. Awesome. Never say never. Never say never. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, Ray. It was great having you back on and everybody make sure that you do check out his pretty much his final presentation, his live presentations uh, that will be July 30th. And that's the, um, what was the, the location? Hillsdale Public Library. Okay, Public Library at noon. At noon, high oh. noon. And they have plenty of seating. You're supposed to have like 90 seats. So and that's open to the public, correct? Open to the public, yeah. free of charge. Awesome. All right, Ray, thanks a lot. And it's been great having you on. Thank you, both of you. Really enjoyed it. Take care, Ray. really dropped some truth bombs on everybody, especially when we found out how southeastern Michigan was basically surrounded by nuclear weapons. Yeah. You know, what else would, you know, attract visitors or others to come and check out? I think 
They were checking out our nuclear technology. I was going to say, we see the stacks all the time when we're on 275 with Fermi. Yeah, you know, I'm just sitting here thinking about this, and maybe these visitors, whatever they are, are interested in nuclear technology because they don't use it. Maybe they use some other form of technology in us splitting the atom and making nuclear weapons and nuclear power is something new that has them interested. I mean, why else would a advanced civilization visiting us be interested in our nuclear technology? Well, again, you know, with the lists that are out there and with Michigan, what, being in the third, fourth spot for uh, most reports to move on? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very interesting. I also did like the fact that he said he's going to have some big news in the future. And yeah, nice, Ray. Yeah. Now, now we're on, <laughs> on the edge of our seat. Yep, he'll be back on to, to let us know about that and talk about that. Oh, um, we're good. Works for me. He's a good guy. He, yeah. He's a nice he's guy to have, have fun on. Fun guy to talk to. Entertaining, good sense of humor. Well, we hope everybody enjoyed the podcast and enjoyed the conversation with Ray. Michelle, I think it's time for us to get out of here. What do you think? It's time to wrap it up for the night, folks. All right, everybody. Have a great night. And remember, keep your eyes to that sky. You have been listening to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. You can reach us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at mi underscore UFO and join our Facebook group by searching for Michigan UFO sightings and paranormal encounters. So until next time.